This episode is brought to you in part by Wholehearted Love, a new book by Caleb and Stephanie Rouse. Overcome the barriers that hold you back in your relationships with God and with others and delight in feeling safe, seen, and loved with Wholehearted Love. For more information, go to Tyndale.com. Welcome back to the Worth Your Time Podcast. I'm your host, Erica, and I'm so glad you're joining me today. My guest is Rachel Pia Jones. She's an American who's been living in Djibouti, that's the Horn of Africa, for over 15 years. She's raised her three children there and lives a beautiful, vibrant life as a Christian among a primarily Muslim population. In today's interview, we talk about the culture shock of moving overseas. She had only been to Mexico one time before moving her whole life over to a third world country with her twin toddlers, and then also giving birth to her third child in a place where she was told there wouldn't be any help if anything went wrong. It was pretty crazy, but I love the story behind why she chose to stay where she was. We also get a peek into Rachel's new book, this wonderful story about a heroic woman, Annalena Tonelli, who was murdered after giving her life as a Catholic to serve among the impoverished Muslims in Somalia. I also chat with Rachel a little about the writing life. She's been published in a lot of great outlets like the New York Times, Deadspin, Christianity Today, and many more, and what it was recently like to send her twins off to college in the United States. Um, you wouldn't think that would be scary, but she said things she's heard made her a little nervous about it, and that's understandable. Bear with me today, guys. We had a tough time with the audio in this episode, but I so thoroughly enjoyed chatting with Rachel that I really want to get this out to you. Take a deep dive into a different life and come away feeling inspired. Enjoy this energy interview with Rachel. Rachel, thank you so much for joining the Worth Your Time podcast today. Uh, how are you doing? I'm doing well. It's great to be here with you, Erica. Uh, well, before we jump into questions, can you just give us the short uh, rundown of who you are? So I have, I'm married. I have three children, 19-year-old um, twins who are in university in the United States and a daughter in high school. And my family lives in Djibouti. And we run a school there, an English language school for preschool through high school. Time ago, yeah. So I'm originally from Minnesota, um, which is where I am physically right now as we're talking. I'm literally in my parents' basement. But yeah, in 2003, my family, at that time, the twins were uh, two and a half. And my husband and I moved to northern Somalia, which is known as Somaliland, mm -hmm. and uh, lived there for about a year where he was a professor. And then after he moved across the border to Djibouti, which is culturally similar, but but also different. So majority Somali people, but it was a former French colony. So it has a lot of French influence. So that's where we are now. So we've been there ever since 2004. Okay. So you guys were both Americans, grew up in the States, and then you decided, hey, we're just going to pick up our life, move overseas with our twins. So give me a little backstory on how you came to that decision. Yeah. Um, especially moving to Somalia. It's not the most common place <laughs> right. to choose to move with little kids. So we were... When we were first married, my husband and I were living in an apartment complex in downtown Minneapolis. He's also from Minnesota. And Minnesota has the largest population of Somalis in the United States. We didn't know that at the time. We just knew that this apartment complex was close to the university where we were taking, we're finishing our degrees and it had cheap housing. And so we moved in there and the vast majority of our neighbors were Somalis, some Ethiopians as well, but, but a lot from East Africa. So we just started to get to know people there. And my husband was getting a master's in engineering and wanted to be a professor eventually. And through our, just through friendships and connections in that apartment complex, 
we started to hear about the north of Somalia because in the south um, at that time and still it's pretty violent and pretty unstable and not a place that I would move to with a family. But we started to hear from people that in the north it was very peaceful. It was Somaliland is a breakaway republic. They're not recognized as an independent nation, but has really been separate from the war and anarchy that's been happening in the south. And there was a university up there in the north, the only at that time functional university. And they were looking for native English speakers who could teach science, which was my husband's, um, what he loved, science and math. And so just through connections and friendships and invitation came up to go there. And uh, we both felt like we'd been given just so much in life. Great families, great education, great upbringing in Minnesota, health, all these things that we just wanted to give out of that. We didn't want to just kind of settle into this American um, comfort life, I guess. We wanted to go outside our comfort zone and serve people and try to use skills that we had. I had to have a degree in linguistics in places that maybe other people wouldn't be willing to go. And with then the invitation from the local people, we went. <laughs> it wasn't uh, wasn't an easy decision. And, and we did feel, or I felt, nervous and fear and all those kinds of things, but really ready for the challenge of being just pushed off the deep end outside our comfort zone. And it's been, it's been good. It's been hard, but it's been really good too. Now, had you had, had you done a lot of traveling to third world countries before? No, not at all. I had been for a few days to Mexico. Wow. <laughs> oh, and I had short trip to Europe. So, so really no experience. Yeah. And in that kind of specific thing, we had experience with Somalis from our community here in Minneapolis. And we knew that when we were going there, we'd have support from them. Like because the university had invited us, they really took responsibility for us, which was great. We didn't feel like, oh, we're so great with this great education. We'll come and do stuff. You know, Mm -hmm. we felt like we knew we'd be helpless. We knew we would need a lot of cultural guidance and support. And because we were able to get that from the community, we felt like, okay, here's a here's something we could learn and grow into. We didn't want to come in and just say, hey, we know what to do. But it was really a good opportunity to learn. And that's how we've tried to identify ourselves all these years, just as learners. Like, this is not my native country. And so coming in with the attitude and the posture of being a learner has been really beneficial. So were you guys planning on staying as long as you have? Or was it just sort of a wait and see what happens type of situation? I would say in Somaliland, it was a little bit of wait and see. Because at that time, there really hadn't been Western expats living in this particular village or even really anywhere in the north or the south for a long time since the war, which broke out in the 90s. And so we didn't know if we'd be able to stay a long time. And then also with our kids, I am not a teacher. My husband is, but I didn't think that we would homeschool. And so I didn't anticipate staying much past, you know, five or six years old for them. But we didn't know where we'd go after that. So it was kind of like, let's go there, see what happens, see what we learn, see what connections we make, and then just take the next step when it comes to us. So what was, I mean, I'm sure you had moments in that first year, especially where you would think to yourself, what have I done? You know, this is, (laughs) you know, just unexpected things. I mean, what was the hardest part for you coming from, you know, never having even been to a third world country outside of Mexico? Boy, Everything. I mean, everything, honestly. I felt like I didn't, I felt like I was playing a part in a play in the sense that I was wearing clothes that felt almost like a costume because it was a Muslim country, very conservative village life. So, you know, they had not seen foreign women very often. And so I covered my head and I wore Somali dresses. I was speaking a language that I had memorized. And so I felt like I was speaking lines because I couldn't, I mean, it took a long time to learn Somali. 
from the beginning, I just felt like I was making recitations. Mm-hmm. I didn't know um, how to shop in the market because the market, it was raw meat hanging from slabs and some of it was goat or camel or beef and I couldn't tell them apart. So I couldn't, I didn't feel like I could feel feed my family. It just was entirely overwhelming. So it was when you lived in Somaliland um, before you moved to Djibouti where that you discovered this woman that you ended up writing this book about, Annalena Tonelli. Tell us what happened because that was a pretty crazy situation where you were living somewhere and then all of a sudden you had to leave and then you discovered this incredible woman and just obviously became fascinated by her. So tell me about that a little bit. Yeah, so what happened was we moved there in January and in October of 2003, she had been working at a tuberculosis and HIV clinic in the same village as us, just basically around the corner from my house for several years. But in October 2003, she was assassinated inside her hospital compound, shot in the head. And the next morning, we got news and my family and another American family that was in the village, the only other American family, we were evacuated to the capital where we stayed in the capital for a week. We just lived in a hospital, like one room, these two families in this hospital, kind of trying to figure out what happened and why was she killed and eventually concluded that probably someone was just mad at her. It was targeted at her. So we were allowed to go back to our home. But I was under strict orders to not leave the house, basically. I couldn't go to the market. I couldn't visit friends. My husband went to work and came back, and that was it. And we knew that we didn't want that to be our life, so we weren't really sure we'd stay very long. But then 10 days later, another British couple who were teaching in a different village, they were shot and killed. And that morning when their bodies were found, we got a phone call from our boss and said, you're leaving right now. Pack a bag. You have 30 minutes and you need to be at the airport. Wow. And the airport was two hours away. So we literally had <laughs> 30 minutes, you know, as fast as we could. How old were the kids at that time? Uh, they were three and a half. Yeah, that's and that's a lot of work just in general. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, they thought we kind of made a game out of it. Um, I was telling them, you know, we could only bring one bag with us. And so they couldn't bring all of their stuff. We didn't have that much stuff, but they couldn't bring really anything. So we just went through the house and they said goodbye to everything. And as we drove out of town, they waved goodbye to their friends' houses. And we had no idea if, if we were in danger, if um, we would ever come back. We, we just didn't know anything. We just knew we had to go. And every other foreigner, there weren't that many. In, the, in our village, there's between seven and eight, if I remember right. In the whole country or region, there weren't very many, probably less than 30. All of us were evacuated that day. Then we, from there, we were in shock, you know, a little bit and moved to Kenya. We spent uh, about two months in Kenya, Nairobi, just trying, we went to counseling, tried to figure out what should we do next. We didn't feel ready at that point to come back because we'd only been in the Horn of Africa for less than a year. And it felt like we had just kind of been getting our feet on the ground, just learning how to have a basic conversation or how to get through the day without feeling so overwhelmed. So we didn't want to leave, just more to learn. And then through, again, connections with Somali friends from the university, my husband was invited to come to Djibouti and teach at the university there. And so January 2004, we got to Djibouti and have stayed ever since. So that was how I first kind of heard about this woman, Annalena Tonelli. But at the time when she was killed, I remember talking about her, like, what did she do? What was her work? What was she like? Why did people kill her? But but I had so much else to think about with the kids being so young and then the evacuation and all that stress. I didn't really think about her much more until about 10 years later when um, a friend suggested that I start looking more into her life. And once I did, I I just discovered this incredible 
woman who had spent 34 years in the Horn of Africa and was just so inspired that I ended up writing this book about her. Had there been much written about her already? No, not in English. There was a little bit. There was a Washington Post journalist who had written several articles about her during the 90s when she worked in southern Somalia during the war. But everything else written about her is pretty much in Italian. And her family and closest friends and co-workers had kind of essentially shut down and said they didn't want to talk about her story. They felt like her story had been sort of manipulated and told inaccurately. And they were really hurt by that, especially some things that happened immediately after her assassination were just really hurtful. And they had just lost their sister and best friend. And so they really didn't want to talk. So what has been written in Italian about her, except for by a few people who knew her well, but some of the, um, there's one book, for example, about her that's just full of mistakes, even full of, has some letters in it that the author said she wrote that she actually didn't write. Things that were just really hurtful to the family. So, so because they were being really quiet, there hasn't been much written about her. So how did you convince them that you were going to do her story well? It took a while, honestly. Um, I first contacted her brother. So a friend of mine had produced a documentary about her life for the UNHCR. And when he produced that documentary, he communicated with the family and then met the brother or over email. So he put me in touch with the brother. Her name, his name was Bruno. And I asked him, I told him what I would like to do, that I would like to write this book, that I really felt like it would be valuable to have input of her family to make it as accurate as possible. And he said, no, <laughs> <laughs> he wrote back an email and gave me a flat, no, we don't want this story to be told. Uh, that's it. And so over the course of a year, I just slowly, once in a while, would send him a message, you know, hey, I'm still working on this. Uh, this is my perspective. I'm coming from, you know, this person who actually lived there when she was killed. She was very Catholic and I um, I grew up Baptist. I come from a Protestant Christian background. And so that was really interesting to the family, actually, that I would be interested as a non-Catholic in her story. And then just kind of slowly massaging the relationship. And then at one point, I just decided, I'm going to go there. I'm going to go to Italy and see if they will meet me. And so I sent him an email and I said, I'm going to be at the train station in your town on this date. I would really love to meet you. And they came uh, her brother and his wife came and picked me up at the train station, which was incredible. I had no, I didn't know for sure if they would be there. And we talked for about an hour and then they said, okay, you are the one we want to tell this story. And, and then once they said yes to me, all of her friends, all of her coworkers, people who had said, we won't talk to you until her family says, okay, they all just opened up their hearts and their memories and their letters, um, it was incredible. So it was a real honor. So as the author, you know, I'm, I'm just sitting here wondering, like, what was going on inside your head and your heart that you were going to keep pursuing this? Like, was this something that you felt like God put on your heart to write this story? Because I mean, it's it's just a huge undertaking. So tell me about your your headspace uh, going into this. I just was so moved by her and personally challenged because my life in some ways is similar um, and in many ways is different, but I wanted to understand her and I was just so compelled by her story. I did feel like God put this story and me in this position to tell it. It just felt like everything was coming together that this was important and I needed to keep pursuing it. And I did feel like, I mean, it was devastating when I first got the no from the family when they wouldn't let me talk to them. But I did feel like I could potentially tell the story anyway, because some people were willing to talk to me. I had already conducted a lot of interviews, a ton of research, but there was this real significant missing gap without some people and then her family's support. 
And so I had tried to write a couple of other books before. I've been actually through two agents and ended up finding them a publisher for this book on my own. And so I think I just am dogged in <laughs> once I know that I believe something needs to be out there, I'll just keep doing it until it happens. So I believe that this story matters. Like she was, I get, I had a lot of feedback from the agents and from different publishing houses that American readers don't care about Africa, mm-hmm. that American readers don't want to read a story about Islam, a positive story. She was, you know, like I said, Catholic, but she was working among Muslims and had great relationships and that um, American readers aren't interested in a Catholic or an Italian woman. And so I just, I don't believe that. I don't believe that American readers don't care about Africa or don't want to hear a positive story about Muslims. And um, I really feel like it's important to tell those stories. And so that I, that conviction, because that's where I live in Djibouti, in the place of being a Christian in a Muslim country in Africa. And it's important that people see the beauty and the positive aspects of that. And so it felt deeply personal and also just compelled by her story to really just keep going. And she's sort of known as like the Mother Teresa of Somalia. Is that right? Yeah, some people say that. Actually, her family... With, I took, it was a little bit um, interesting. My publisher has definitely marketed it as that, which is easy. I, it makes a lot of sense. That's how I see her. That's how a lot of Somalis see her. Um, and it's a phrase that makes a lot of sense. She was different from Mother Teresa, but kind of positioned in that way of really serving the caring for the oppressed, coming alongside people as they're, as they're dying and trying to help them live. And so in a lot of ways, there's some connections. And and so tell me, you know, kind of like her crowning achievement. I mean, it was she found a cure to tuberculosis. She did not find the cure for it, but she proved that existing protocols would work among nomadic populations. And there there was treatment for it starting in the 40s. But the treatment required 12 to 18 months of daily pills, really strict protocols, a lot of side effects and um the medications weren't all available in certain parts of the world. Really, the worst stricken places in the world didn't have access to this kind of treatment. And so when she was working, she moved to Kenya in 1969 and was working in northern Kenya among Somali nomads. And nomads would get tuberculosis, and there's no way that a nomad is going to stay inside a hospital for 18 months. Mm-hmm. They don't live inside buildings. They don't stay in one place. This is just impossible. And... They didn't always have access to all that medication. They were very remote. Most of the pharmacies in that region were unstocked and unstaffed. And so what she was able to do was figure out protocols with existing tuberculosis medications to bring the treatment down to six months. And then she invited nomads to come. She had a big center that was given her in this village in Kenya. And she invited the nomads to come and build their hut. You know, they could put up a hut in one day, take it down in one day, and they'd put it back on their camels and go off. But They'd build their huts in her center. They could bring their animals. They could bring some of their family members. And then they could feel like they were really having some kind of autonomy and control over their treatment. They weren't in a hospital room. They were outside. They were able to maintain some aspects of their nomadic life. And then she would provide the treatment. And and she contributed to what is now known as DOTS, Directly Observed Therapy Short Course, which requires that every pill a person takes is observed by a medical professional. And people are taking pills multiple times throughout the day. And so she would observe every single pill that people were taking. And this was what brought the treatment time down to six months. And then she also provided education. She provided food. Observation of the pill taking. Explain that to me, like why that's significant or what that meant. Um, There's a lot of negative side effects that people would feel nauseous. There can be um, 
even some kind of liver damage, just damage to the body. Somali culture is very communal and they share what they have. And so if you're feeling sick and I have medication, I'll give you some of mine. Mm. Um, and so people were taking the wrong treatments or they weren't finishing their treatments. And if you start TB treatment and don't finish it, you can end up developing a case of drug-resistant tuberculosis, which is incredibly difficult to treat. And that was happening. And it was it's really dangerous. It's a global issue still. And so they sell them or they'd give them to somebody else. And so to watch them actually to make sure each person was following the right protocol, even sometimes if they would feel sick and they would throw it up, she would get them a piece of cake or some bread and give them another pill and make sure they swallowed it down. Like just really was incredibly strict about watching the treatment. That here's a place where you can get, you can be fed, you can live outside, get education, come and build a mosque on the property so they could continue to follow Muslim practice and you can get cured. Then people started coming and then her treatment really took off. She's such a great example of you know, living, living as Jesus would want us to live, you know, there's just such an emphasis on living as the poor and living with them. And she was almost obsessively like that, right? Like she didn't want to have a bed. So, you know, I guess personally, did you learn sort of from her example that you've taken with you? She was incredible and like another world in that her before and her commitment to really, like you said, living like them and being among them was pretty radical. Like she would say, the poor don't have a mattress and so I don't have a mattress. Or she was so committed to her time commitment to them that she didn't want to take her meals hot because it would take too much time to eat them. She would just eat a little salad and get back to work. The one time that my husband met her, she came running out of the hospital and she said, hello, welcome. I have to get back to my patient. <laughs> she didn't have time for healthy, strong people. She wanted to be with the sick and the poor all the time. She had two dresses, one pair of shoes that was given to her from a patient. She took no salary. Just really radical. I also moved to the same region, try to be helpful. I try to be generous and care for the poor, but I have a bed and I like a good meal. And so I have taken that strong radical steps that she did. But what I love is she had a friend who's in the book. Her name is Maria Teresa, who I just adore. And Maria Teresa lived with Annalena in Kenya for several years. And she said, yeah, Annalena slept on the floor, but I slept on a mattress. <laughs> and so she just was this woman who could really, who demonstrated like you can still care and love the poor and take reasonable steps to take care of your own body as well. That's amazing. Yeah, I and and by the way, I just I think it's just you have beautiful writing and I'm looking forward to to finishing the book and I think yeah, she is a woman that I think everyone could be served by knowing her story and being inspired by how she lived her life. So I think that's mm -hmm. really awesome. I'm so glad you were able to get it out there. I want to ask you a couple more questions just about your life living overseas. You know, you say you live in a you have a bed and, and all of these things, but you still live in Djibouti. Um, you're living a very different life than, you know, a lot of probably your, your friends that are living back in America. So you're in America now. Um, what is it like when you come back home and how often do you come back home? Our normal schedule for coming back has been July, August in Minnesota. Right now I'm coming back more often. I was back for book tour in October. Right now I'm here for a month, um, actually I have thyroid cancer, um, recurrent. I came, I had a treatment last year. It came back. And so now I'm here for more tests to see what will be the next step. Um, it's a really slow growing, not aggressive kind of cancer, but I just have to take care of it. So because of that, I'm coming back 
more often than I would like to. Mm -hmm. Coming back, I think because we've been gone 17 years now, I used to have a lot of culture shock. And I think I would, honestly, if we came back and settled here, like if I was going to be here for years, I would experience culture shock on a deeper level. But for now, I just come back and I'm like, bring on the American food, bring on the shopping, you know, whatever I need to pick up to bring back with me. Um, Like stuff I can't get there, bring on my friends and family, you know, I just try to enjoy it and not be overwhelmed by the culture shock kind of thing. This episode is brought to you in part by Beyond Ordinary Women Ministries, which prepares Christian women for leadership. At Bow, we believe that every woman is a leader because she influences someone. So whom do you influence? Do you mentor a woman, serve in the workplace, or do you lead a small group, teach the Bible, or even lead an entire ministry? No matter who or how many you influence, our free online resources will help equip you. Our videos, podcast episodes, and articles from experienced women leaders will encourage you and perfect your leadership skills. They offer wisdom for dealing with ministry pitfalls, current biblical issues, health for your own soul, and insights for shepherding others well. In addition, BOW offers Bible studies designed to connect women of multiple generations. They provide a challenge to both women new to the Bible and those wanting to dig deeper. Be our guest and browse all of our free resources and low-cost Bible studies at beyondordinarywomen.org. So just enjoying the weather, which is hard in Minnesota when it's negative outside. Oh, yeah. I know you've written a couple articles about your experience and like looking at American Christians, uh, you know, sort of from a different lens, having been outside of the outside of the States. Like, can you talk about that a little bit about, you know, what's it like, uh, you know, I guess you probably, you don't probably have a lot of Christian friends where you are, but sort of like, how has your perspective changed on, I guess, American Christianity or how that's lived out here? Yeah, I have a, I have a lot of thoughts about that. One thing for me is that what church looks look like is really different when I'm in Djibouti than when I'm here. Here, church looks like meeting on Sunday. The church that we're sent out of is pretty large. And so you could potentially go there for a service and leave and not see anyone that you, um, of course, if you take initiative, you would see people. But when I'm in Djibouti, um, my, my church is not necessarily the place we go on a Sunday. So even Sunday is a work day in Djibouti. Our work week is Sunday through Thursday. And the church service is Sunday night, which is a little bit like going to church on Monday night <laughs> in America. But I do know other believers. And our, our church is kind of what happens when we go on long walks together and we pray for each other. Or uh, like the community of believers there, because it is small, is really supportive and really tight. And I know that I can rely on them for if I have need, like a health need or, um, you know, if someone else has a kid in crisis. Like we are just there for each other because we have to be. There's nobody else with that same shared faith, there's definitely other community. I have Muslims who are praying for me with my cancer. And in terms of being encouraged in my own Christian faith, it happens really in in relationship, which I love. And then in terms of like with relating across faith with Muslims, I just, I love that. I feel really motivated and encouraged and challenged by their faith. And uh, I just, I want to be sharpened by what's around me. I feel like also to, to, I really appreciate some aspects of Islam, um, like the five time daily call to prayer. I can hear it from my house. I can hear it from the office at work five times a day. People are reminded that God is great. It's time to pray. And I don't always use that time to pray, but it's a reminder. Like spirituality is very much present in 
in Djibouti in terms of conversation and daily life. And so that's something that I, I miss when I come back to the United States. It's not so much of a uh, global presence in the culture when I'm here. Mm-hmm. Matters of faith and um, conversations about God, which really just happen naturally. Is there any, I mean, it sounds like you're, you feel pretty safe. Is there any persecution in that area of the world for Christians? There is persecution for if a local person were to become a Christian. Mm. For us as foreigners, no expectation that we wouldn't kiss our own faith. And so well, there's a Protestant church that are allowed to exist. But for local people, it, there would be persecution that they converted. Another thing I wanted to ask you about, I you know, I was doing research on you. I saw that you were a runner, which is cool. I'm also a runner. And, and I saw that you had started um, a running club for girls, that you have been featured in Women's Running Magazine um, and written about a marathon in Somalia, which is really cool. So tell me about being a runner in a third world country and how do you do that safely and uh, what that's like for you. The hardest thing about it in Djibouti is that it's really hot. Mm-hmm. I would say two hard things, the heat and the harassment. So in the summer, which is, well, it's hot from April through October. So most of the year. And I'm talking like 100 degrees with high humidity of up to 120 degrees, mm. just straight up temperature. And then you add humidity and it's insane. So most of the time it's like 85 would be a cold day for me, which here marathons get canceled but I'm again I'm just stubborn and like I'm a runner so I'm gonna run even if it's slow and ugly and painful so yeah I started running in I think it was 2008 and there was at the local track a group of girls who were running but there was no coach who would them because they were girls and there were some other issues involved but I just felt like these girls need some support they're getting injured none were in school and so with another American and I started a group called Girls Run 2 and to be in the team on the running team you have to be in school and so that was the main focus was keeping them in school and then they could come and practice and then we would help them participate in races and different events and get them shoes and stuff like that sports bras and vitamins just kind of very basic stuff one of the most incredible stories about this running club is that in 2009 a young girl joined and now this year she is the coach of the team and she's in university so she has just succeeded in all the ways we dreamed that she would or that a girl would. She's one of the first girls to, I think she is the first girl out of the club to go to university. Um, So that's just really incredible to see and to support that. And just to see these girls come around each other, support each other, both in running and in school and in family life and all the things that they need support in. Now, are you a marathon runner or shorter distances? I do run marathons. I run three um, I'm not fast. I've, I did two in the United States and then I did one marathon, the first marathon in Somaliland. So that, how, was it really hot? Was it like a hundred degrees? It was hot. It was probably 85, maybe 90. I did take second place Wow. for women, which my husband said I should stop. I should say second place in an international marathon and then I should stop. But I always feel like I have to add that only three women started the race <laughs> <laughs> and only two finished. <laughs> Second out of two. That's awesome. It was the worst race oh, of my gosh, entire life. Yeah, that sounds like it yeah. would be it really was, hard. It was really hard. It was really fun that I did it. I have just a couple more things I wanted to ask you about. Um, I, I, One of the things I noticed recently that you posted about was you had written this essay in the New York Times several years ago uh, about your experience giving birth in a third world country. And this is just this beautiful essay about your choice to stay in an area that may not have been you know, totally safe where something to go wrong and just what that experience was like. And then it was, or 
uh, it was turned into an audio audio form for the modern love um, section of the newspaper, which was that was also just turned into a TV show that I watched, which was really good. Um, but could you just give us the brief story about that and um, also why you decided to you know, stay put for the birth of your child. Yeah. So it was 2005 and we were at that point, it had been a year in Djibouti so far, two years in the Horn of Africa. And I was pregnant and I was, my husband was teaching. I was due at the start of the semester and I did not want to go somewhere else and have the baby by myself. He, he could have left the university for taking a semester off or something but we just thought you know what it would be really incredible to do this here women have babies here <laughs> and so why not me it was it was not uh, how, how do I say this there wasn't really a great hospital there was a hospital it was used by, at that time by the French military but I had when I went in there to meet with the potential anesthesiologist if I needed some something I had to sign a paper that said I understand that I should leave the country and I'm choosing to stay and I won't sue if anything went wrong there was no intervention available I just had to give birth and hopefully everything would go well and so we just decided that we wanted to to stay we felt convicted um to to identify in that way and just share the experience with local women and really were praying like crazy that God would protect me and the baby and also just being pregnant with one after having been pregnant with twins felt like, oh, this is, <laughs> this is a little easier. So the twins' birth was in Minnesota. Um, and my daughter was born vaginally with no medication or anything. She was born pretty quick. But then my son ended up turning and he was born by C-section. So I had both deliveries in the, like in the span of 45 minutes. That's rough. And so it felt like what could really... <laughs> that's rough yeah, because rough. it's like it at least if you just do one of those like you know only one part of your body is healing but oh my gosh to have both and then you have twins that you're feeding yeah. so I can't imagine yeah exactly I'm really thankful she was born on September 11th 2005 and so that even felt meaningful to us like here's this Christian family in a Muslim country the midwife that I had that night was a Somali woman Muslim Fardusa and so on this kind of day of American infamy and, you know, grief and tragedy, we, a different day, four years later, but together in my community among Muslims, we created something beautiful. And so it, it just was really meaningful to me. And the things I learned about culture around pregnancy, birth and post-birth, I just, I could never have learned those if I didn't go through that experience there. And I'm really thankful. Yeah, I'm sure that was very meaningful, maybe even more meaningful for uh, just the just the people around you and just like, you know, the the way people maybe viewed you as a family. Um, I thought it was like one of the most striking things in your essay was just about someone saying to you, well, if something happens and the baby dies, like you don't know the baby yet and you don't love it. So it'll be okay. Yeah. Yeah. And that's kind of the attitude locally of like, well, you're just a shocking thing to hear. <laughs> but I guess, you know, in a culture where death is more common. Yeah. Yeah. I don't want I don't want to make the mothers sound cold and heartless because that's not what it is. I think that could be how it's interpreted. And sometimes in the news, that's how places like Somalia are interpreted, which is one of my reasons of wanting to tell different stories from the region. But what it is, it's a coping mechanism. What else can they right. do? 
you know, and so they just, they have to, they have to grit, like grit their teeth and just get through it. And so as horrible as it sounds and hard as it is to hear, and in a lot of ways, I just, I have a lot of compassion and empathy for them and respect for them for what they walk through. Yeah, I was going to say exactly that, just that when you live in a country where I'm sure the infant mortality rate is much higher, you have to find a way to get through life. And I'm sure that's something that people just have to say to themselves to survive. And, uh, you know, that makes a lot of sense. So, um, so you've now just sent your twins to college back here in the United States, which how does that feel? You know, they've been with you that whole time. And then of course, you're youngest is now without their your youngest is a girl she's mm-hmm. now without her siblings which I'm sure is hard so what has that yeah. been like because I always say oh I hope my kids don't choose to go to college across the country and so this is a step beyond even that yeah yeah it's been hard um for me I'm so proud of them like they are doing incredible it's been a challenge for them to figure out America and American college students. And honestly, when you live abroad and you see the news coming out of the United States, it's like, oh, I think it's a little scary to send my kids to this foreign country. You know, people asked us before, aren't you afraid to go to Africa? And now I'm really, I'm afraid to send my kids to America. <laughs> but we have seen and we know that God is with them everywhere. We've like, that is a deep experience, a profoundly real to us as a family. And so we can send them to Wisconsin or Minnesota for college and trust that God will be with them there. It has been, as every parent at this age, I think, earns just really letting go is really important. And, and letting them make their own way in the world is scary. But the actual idea is kind of helpful in the transition, but kind of not, is that our kids actually went to boarding school. Uh, there's already been some of that separation of having sent them to this other school, um, which is in Kenya. So our youngest is at a school in Kenya right now. So we're in three different countries as a family. And they have loved it. They've loved that experience of being at that school. So in that sense, like she's a little used to them being away, although they were at school together before. And so now she's, you know, making her own way. We just were all together at Christmas. um, First time in about a year in the same country in Djibouti. And so that was really fun to all be together. You're also... um you know, you're, you're publishing writing, which I think is really cool that you're publishing writing about where you live and just these unique angles. Um, I saw the, was the article about the Somalia marathon, was that in Vice? Deadspin. Oh, Deadspin. Okay. I don't know what I was thinking. That's really cool. How, how have you found success pitching this stuff? Interested as a, as a freelance writer myself, um, you know, how you've been able to grab the attention of editors and really make them say, Hey, this is worth, you know, printing this. Yeah. It's, Sometimes been really sometimes it's a little easier because I have a really unique niche. There's I don't know anybody else writing about Djibouti in English anyway, uh, or about Somalia without having to be a news story. You know, I'm trying to write the the daily life stories, the personal stories. So I have a very unique perspective, and that's helpful. On the other hand, like I said before, I keep hearing many times this audience doesn't care about Africa, and so I have to overcome that hurdle and try to explain why they need to, why this matters. Like I was told, I was working on a story from a magazine that ended up getting canceled because they eventually came back to me and said, well, I've also just taken a story for a couple of months later about Iraq <laughs> and we can't have two country stories in the same year. Oh my gosh, <laughs> that's insane. Djibouti is nothing like Iraq for one thing. And yeah, also, that seems... Yeah, but then the story got picked up by a different magazine. So I just have to, I have to figure out how to make them care which makes the storytelling better. It helps me grow as a writer. Um, 
Yeah. And then just trying to find unique angles of things. Like I was also asked recently, what is the unique angle about this story that would be different from an American person running? And I mean, I could, every single thing is different. Everything from the clothes you wear to female genital mutilation is an issue for women to the harassment to the heat to the yeah. you know environment geography geographically that we're running in like nothing is the same and so i have to figure out which magazine will respond to which of those differences and then target it that way how much of or how much time do you spend writing i mean is pitching something that you're doing a lot or is it sort of like oh i'll do it if something comes to mind or are you really con- like making a concerted effort to come up with good pitches to get published Currently, I feel like I'm not pitching enough. I want to be pitching more. I just launched this book in October, and I have a second manuscript that's due to my publisher in April. And so I've been working on those two things and then figuring out how to market a book. I do feel like, wow, it's been a while since I pitched stuff, so I need to get back into it. It's hard to keep... So can like, you tell us what your next book is about? Yeah. Um, I have a, I wish I had a better way to describe it that would make you all think I have to read this book right away. But the right now, the working title is Pillars, and it's how living around the five pillars of Islam has impacted and affected faith. And so it has five sections, which are the Shahada, um, the creed, kind of becoming a Muslim, and then the Salat, which is prayer, Zakat, which is charity or generosity, Ramadan, which is the month of fasting, and Hajj, which is the pilgrimage to Mecca. And so I go through each of those five pillars and explore how my own Christian faith has been challenged or sharpened or encouraged or or even pushed back pushing back on that from what I know and experience of God in the in the Horn of Africa. Oh, that sounds really interesting. And I, I really do also agree with you just I, I've thought often about the Islam call to prayer five times a day and how and like how powerful that could be if we as Christians would take that same step in our lives every day and stop what we're doing and, you know, pray. And like, and I know that I know that I don't, uh, and I know that it could really make a difference in my life. So I think that's a really, really cool thing. What is a goal for yourself that you'd like to accomplish in the next five to 10 years? I have a really hard time with goals. And I wish I was better at it, especially because in five to 10 years, I'm not sure what country I'll be living in. But I would like to keep writing. I have some besides this book I'm working on for the that's due in April. I have several other ideas that I'd like to keep pushing on. So growing my work as a writer, a specific goal that I have is I would like to run a marathon. I have to first post cancer, which I'm not yet. So I have to get that out of me and get healed and then train, which would be really amazing. I thought I was done marathoning after Somaliland, but I feel like oh, I want I have one so more. So you seem very chill about this cancer thing. <laughs> How do you do that? <laughs> I... Um, I don't know, I guess if I was consumed with anxiety or fear about it, I just would feel so paralyzed. And I have a lot of other things I want to do. Like, I want to work on this book. I want to keep running. I want to spend time with my family. And I don't want to feel paralyzed or constricted by just worry about something that I can't do anything about. So right now, I literally have two more days to get through until I meet with my doctor and she will tell me the next. So I just have to put it out of my mind. I can't do anything about it until Monday. And then we'll see. And so, I, of course, I have dark moments. Yesterday, I had a big scan, and I, I did feel like, oh, I don't, I don't want to do this, and just kind of some dread. But, but okay, I have to do it. I have to get healthy, so let's do it. Are you, do you find that you're a person that doesn't worry in general much? I think I do worry, maybe not a ton, but, but then I just put it aside, I guess, and put my head down and get the work done. Wow, I think that's, I think that's just 
kind of inspiring, maybe inspiring to someone that's listening, just, you know, you're just kind of like, yeah, this is just something I'm like, I have to deal with this, but you know, it's fine. I have like all these other things to do. So I think it's kind of refreshing to hear that from you. And, and I, I sure hope that it is, you know, that your treatment does zap it. Um, and I'm glad to hear that it's slow growing. Um, but you know, maybe that can serve as sort of an inspiration for someone that's going through something like that. Um, just to know that other people are doing it and, uh, you know, still keeping their heads. Well, you said keep your head down. I was going to say keep your head up, but, you know, both of those analogies keep work. Your head up. <laughs> if you could have dinner or drinks with anyone, who would it be and why? This was really fun to think about because there's one scene in my book, and I remember talking with Maria Teresa about this, Annalena's friend, where they're in Kenya in Wajir, and Maria Teresa was working with people who had their whose bodies had been broken or twisted by polio or by other diseases, malnutrition, snake bites, all kinds of things that people were facing at that time. So she was doing rehabilitation work with a lot of kids and adults. And then Annalena was working with these people with contagious diseases. And so, and they also had, um, they started a school for deaf students and they had some blind kids that were hanging around their property, the, the compound. And so they described these meals they would have with all these people around the table you know, their bodies broken or their minds, you know, not healthy, um, contagious diseases. And they would just be laughing and loving each other and feasting. And someone might come to the door in the middle of dinner and knock and ask for food and they would jump up and give them food from the table. And I would just love to be part of that. Maria Teresa said, Jesus talks to these, we have the least of these and we are so full of joy. And, um, I just, how incredible would it be to be a part of a meal like that? Yeah, that's a great answer. All right. Last uh, question, book or book and or podcast recommendations. You know, I always want to hear what books people are loving. Um, And as a podcast person obsessed with podcasts, that too. (laughs) Well, for writer, my favorite podcast is Long Form. Do you listen to that? I just recently started listening to that, actually. I started from the very beginning and I've actually gone through and listened to them all again. I feel Mm. like it's like getting a master's in writing or something for these journalists. That's good so to I know. Love that. I'll step it up on that one. Yeah, it's really my favorite. It comes out Thursday in the U.S. So on Friday, which is when I do my long run, I wake up thinking, I get to on my long run, and that motivates me out the door, which is Have you nerdy. pitched to Longform before? Yes, I've pitched to their website. I had an article published on the website called A Muslim, a Christian, and a Baby Named God, which is really fun to work on. Ooh, cool. Great book that I've loved recently by a Somali author. His name is Abdi Iftin Noor, and the book is Call Me American. And um, he was young during the Civil War, the war in Somalia, and then he immigrated to Maine, where he lives now. Um, his story has actually been featured on NPR and another podcast, but a really great book about what it was like growing up during the war and then coming here and kind of his transition and his culture shock. And it's really well written. So that's Call Me American. I've also really enjoyed lately Holy Envy by Barbara Brown Taylor. And I mean, just everything Barbara Brown Taylor writes, like, Holy Envy. <laughs> I just, she's, she's so beautiful in her work and her perspective. And so she writes about um, taking students from her classes where she's a professor into other religious 
systems or buildings, temples, mosques, and experiencing a different, another person's spiritual practice and experience. It's really good. I just read my first, oh, sorry, go ahead. You just read your first Barbara Brown Taylor? Yes. I just read uh, Leaving Church because that's uh, related to what I'm writing about now. And I mean, yeah, like her writing is so amazing and it really inspired me. Like I, you know, as I like went to my next writing session after finishing that book, I was like, I want to write like kind of like that. And I, I then like wrote something that I looked, I uh, looked back on after writing. I was like, man, like, you know, I sort of almost didn't realize I had that in me. Um, And she was just very inspirational in that way. So I'm going to have to read some more of her stuff. Definitely. I have some of those books on my desk where I work just so I can look at them. And you were going to say one more? <laughs> yeah, the last one I was going to mention was Trick Mirror by Gia Tolentino. It's a series of essays and, and just everything Gia Tolentino writes is incredible. She's so smart. She uh, Some of the essays didn't resonate as much in the book, but she came, comes out of an evangelical background, is not would not identify as a Christian today. So in that sense, we're very different because I do very much rooted in faith. She also had served abroad, um, I forget where, but in the Central Asia area with the Peace Corps. And so she writes about things she experienced, like sexual harassment and cross-cultural issues and challenges that I really identified with. And so that that's not all of the essays. Some of the other essays in the book are about tech and social media and current culture in the United States. But she just really has a sharp outlook on on experience and what what she's seeing in the world. That one's tricked me. Yeah, she. Um, I just recently started following her on Twitter, and I've been seeing a lot of her stuff lately. So she's really been catching my eye with a lot of her work. So that's good to know. Thank you so much for taking the time to do this. Um, it was really fascinating to hear about so many different parts of your life, and I just uh, I think it was. Really cool. I hope people go buy your book. Um, and I really wish you luck on this next one. Thank you. It's, this is really fun. This episode was brought to you in part by the Truce Podcast. The new season examines the connection between some evangelicals and the Republican Party with the help of world-class historians. Subscribe to Truce in your podcast app or listen at trucepodcast.com.